so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerler. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode, what are we up to? 86 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where... For once, we're not terribly angry. Like, that's kind of, that's a nice change of things. Only a uh, little angry. Just a little, a touch angry. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me today is Karen Peterson. Hello. And Kristen just continues to, to, try, to try to evade us. So she's like, I don't know, she's hanging out with Tiffany Haddish and being very important and everything, but she will be back before long. Uh, and of course, we miss her very much. As as always, well, how are you doing today, Karen? We've we've been off for a little bit. We have. We took a little bit of an unexpected break last week, but I am um, doing pretty good. It's been busy. We're right in the middle. It's this weird time with the uh, Oscars being a little earlier this year coming up. Uh-huh. Um, there's a huge overlap between Emmy and Oscar campaigns. The Oscar stuff has already started, and I'm like. My calendar is ridiculous. I don't, I, I, yeah, it's sad and I'm tired and I haven't slept, I feel like, in three weeks. But, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. I'm here. <laughs> that's okay. How I are am, you? I am completely <laughs> relaxed. I've been out of New York City for about a week now and just like, oh my God, the world is so quiet and calm and sunny and like it's a comfortable temperature. My God. Like, <laughs> And I've also avoided Twitter for a lot of this week, so that that helps that's, things a yeah, little bit. That's enough to make anybody's mood a million times better, yes. especially this week. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, definitely. I log I logged onto Twitter and I was like, "What is even happening? I am so confused." <laughs> there were feral hogs. Oh, that and part was awesome. You missed the feral hogs, and I'm sorry for you on that one. I missed the beginning, and then I had to go back and Google the feral hogs. I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, all right, now I understand what's happening. Okay, good good to know. One of my friends typed into Twitter, what is the deal with the feral hogs? I don't understand why everyone's talking about it. And I'm like, if only there was a way that you could go onto a website and search for things. <laughs> That would tell you. <laughs> well, I, I think we're going to be talking about people's inability to use things like Google yes. and other search engines before long. But very quickly, we do, of course, want to promote our Patreon because that is how we survive as uh, as a podcast. And, of course, you also get fun stuff if you subscribe. You get episodes early, get some bonus content, you can get pins, all sorts of exciting things. So, you know, if you're not already subscribed to our Patreon, please, please consider doing it. It's very helpful for us and also very much a huge thank you to those people who are you guys are awesome and and you often also tend to be the ones who like ask us questions and stuff like that so that's always fun yes uh and a very quick reminder that we are still running i believe our what's in the bag contest through the end of this month 
Uh, yeah, all the way through through the end of August. And what you do is, I, there will be another tweet up about this shortly. But you go onto our our Twitter page, and you retweet the tweet about what's in the bag, and you give your guess what is in the bag. It could be my, my sanity. Piece of mind. Yeah, Karen's. <laughs> Karen, Sandy, my peace of mind. We're getting very abstract with the things that are in the bag now. It's also my alarm clock, which I don't need anymore because I never sleep. So <laughs> I don't need to wake up. So is it Karen's alarm clock? We don't know. You can guess. And at the end of the month, we will announce who wins what's in the bag. Yes. So let's let's start out with somehow we are still talking about Quentin Tarantino. <sighs> We're going to be talking about him for another 20 years, aren't we? I feel like we are. I was actually saying to my roommate uh, the other day that I'm really looking forward to this being over because he only releases like a movie once every couple of years, so we won't have to talk about him for a little while, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I will say it's a little interesting that this is coming back up today. We're recording on August 9th, which today is the actual 50th anniversary of the murders of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, and several other people. It's, I'm, I'm very glad that he did not, that he lost that, that he did not release the film on that day, because I don't think I could have handled the conversations. Oh my gosh, no, no. I'm glad that, I mean, the conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has largely died out already after two weeks. And so yeah. today, I know people are going to be talking about it, people are going to be thinking about it, but... But yeah, I agree with you. I'm so glad Sony was just like, no, on this, we're not going to let you win. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a good call. Yeah. Uh, so, but Tarantino has been, I think, kind of come back up again because um, Time did a somewhat odd um, overview, I guess you would say, uh, dealing with the the way that characters speak in Tarantino's films. Be, and this, this, was init- this was initially launched because a while back, if we all remember, uh, a New York Times reporter asked Tarantino about uh, Margot Robbie's lack of dialogue in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And specifically, and Tarantino, without answering the question, uh, went off and said, I reject your hypothesis, assuming that what she was complaining about, this was a female reporter, what she was complaining about was the fact that this this famous woman has very little lines in the film in comparison with the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Time went off and did uh, a, a quick analysis of uh, Tarantino's film scripts, sort of profiling who speaks more in his various films. And initially, one of the things that they were initially criticized for was that they had left out Death Proof. Yeah. Which is, of course, one of the most, in terms of gender, one of the most heavily weighted towards women. Uh, And their argument initially had been, well, it was part of the Grindhouse film, so it wasn't technically a standalone film. But, I mean, I I think that that's, that's kind of a bullshit argument. It is, especially when you consider that Tarantino made a big point to say Kill Bill is one movie, but he's also, like, volume one and two, but he's also counting Death Proof in his list of nine films on this journey to ten that he claims he's making. So it's like, if Tarantino counts this as one of his nine films, then yeah. it definitely counts. <laughs> There's no argument. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of it's a it's a weird kind of analysis when you're saying that oh we're gonna leave out 
one of the films that probably that does in a certain sense disprove the the initial concept which is that men speak more than women in Tarantino's films right um but of course we've all we can also discuss that so this kind of got jumped on a lot uh, they did finally include death proof in the final analysis the article that is now up on um, time.com is does include death proof in all of this but actually, just looking at the numbers, the numbers are interesting. Well, first, let's let's just establish um, they add three rules for what counts as a line. And so they're not counting words, and they're not even really, yeah. So their three rules are, one, a line had to be at least three words long. So someone saying stop or no doesn't count as a line. Mm-hmm. Uh, narration voiceovers count as long as they are three words or more. And then off-screen dialogue also counts as long as it's three words or more. All of which seems fairly reasonable to me. Yeah. Um, and so what, what they discovered is that, yes, by and large, with the exception of Death Proof and uh, Kill Bill Volume 1, they're counting the Kill Bills as two films, uh, men predominate in dialogue. And even within Kill Bill Volume 1, it's 56.8% are spoken by women and 43.2% are spoken by men. So it's almost evenly split, Um, a little bit of a a weighted towards women. Um, I think, you know, this kind of analysis I always find interesting, and this sort of got jumped on by a lot of people on film Twitter arguing that, you know, this is bad kind of film analysis, that this this doesn't count in some sense. But I do actually think that in this case it does count. And one of the things that I go back to is I, I was a um, I was an English major, and one of the things that we were taught to do was actually to note how often characters get to speak versus other characters. So one of the really interesting things in some of Shakespeare's plays is who the play is about versus who actually dominates the dialogue. So Iago has more lines and greater weight of dialogue in Othello than Othello does. So you get this impression of Iago dominating the the dialogue and dominating the narrative. He also gets more soliloquies. Um, that within itself is not, you know, the is not the be all and end all of a, of a piece of theory or a piece of analysis. But it is significant. It does mean that the way that we understand characters and the way that we uh, listen to characters and whose perspective we're taking is is dependent upon who gets to say more, who gets to talk more, who has more of a screen presence. Because that's the other thing when it comes to dialogue, it is about how how much screen presence you're getting. Because if you're speaking, people are paying attention to you in some sense, even if it's happening off camera. Um, so I think that this is actually a really interesting, it's an interesting piece of data that should probably be folded into other forms of analysis when discussing Tarantino's films. Um, so what did you think about all of this, Karen? I don't want to dominate the conversation. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I actually, I agree with you. I think that this is a useful tool. It's not, this shouldn't be where the, where the conclusions start and end and where the, you know, proclamation comes on whether Tarantino is fair to women in his films. I think there are a lot of things that go into making that kind of a, dis, uh, di, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? That kind of a determination. Because, for example, you look at The Hateful Eight, which I don't like that movie, and I think it's it's really awful to, to the women in that movie, but the 
analysis they came up with is 12.2% of the lines are female are from women and 87.8% are from men. But okay, that makes sense when you consider Jennifer Jason Lee is the only major female character in that movie. And there are what two, maybe three other women, I think three other women that have very small parts and most of what they're there for is to be brutally murdered and the rest of the cast is all men. So it's like you sit there and go, oh, yeah, like, that's, you know, this is this is what makes it terrible for women is the lack of dialogue. Well, no, there's a lot of other things, <laughs> like the violence that makes it really yeah. bad toward women, you know? So I think it's a useful measure. I think it's some interesting data. I'm a little pissed that they got paid to do this, and I didn't, although then they... <laughs> But then on the flip side, they had to sit and watch all the Tarantino films. <laughs> so and, and analyze that. the stuff, yeah. Right. But, um, but I've seen other studies done like this. I know there was a huge one done a few years ago about the, the ratio for Disney animated films. And it was like, oh, this is really interesting when you have a princess movie and the princess, along to your point, you know, the princess isn't the one that does most of the talking and, you know, that kind of thing. Although then you have to be careful because I remember the conversation about Sleeping Beauty and people were saying like, oh, look, the male, the men dominate this film in speaking parts. And it's like, okay, well, your main character's asleep for a good chunk of it. And the whole thing is the prince coming to save her. So, of course, he's going to talk a lot. He's awake. She's not. So it's like you you have to look at what's really happening. What's what's being done with that dialogue that that exists and how does it serve the larger story? So that's I think you and I are on the same page on this one. It's it's interesting and it's informative, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, and, and I think that, like, like you're saying, so Reservoir Dogs is kind of difficult to count because I didn't even know if there was a female character in Reservoir Dogs. I seriously I had to think it. about it when I saw it on the list. I was like, wait. Yeah, <laughs> there's maybe like a waitress or something. <laughs> yeah, like, there's I, a waitress. I, I think that's it. So, so that to me is like, okay, well, that that's kind of, in that sense, it's sort of an outlier. You're like, okay, well, we can maybe dismiss that one. I think some of the more interesting ones are, are ones like Jackie Brown. Um, and the Kill Bill films, where all three of which are centered on female characters. Jackie Brown, is the, she's the title character. Um, uh, same thing with the Kill Bill films. And the Kill Bill films are a little more balanced, but even Kill Bill Volume 2, you still have a dominance of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would actually be interested to see those those put together and analyzed as, as a single film to actually see you know the full scope of it. But I think that that's where you begin to get an interesting issue because if you're t- if you're talking about films that centralize women, that feature women, and in which the the women are technically the most important characters, yet the women do not dominate the dialogue, and that again, not taking that as the sole criteria for analysis, but that is certainly something that can feed into a discussion of the way that Tarantino represents women and the way that he approaches women, even in those films where he is focusing on them. Um, and then, of course, you do have to take into account movies like Death Proof, where women dominate the dialogue, uh, and is, I think, one of the one of the only ones where women do that, and uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 are the only two films that women actually have uh, over fifty percent of the dialogue, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's an it's a thorny issue, and there a lot was made of it. And I think that 
too much was made of it probably but i still find it interesting yeah i do too and one other one other thing i want to say and this is where it ties directly into once upon a time in hollywood is uh, you know there was that reporter that asked the question about how many lines she has and then there have been a few people myself included who've pointed out like yeah there's a lot of time where she just doesn't talk she's just there to look pretty and and so some people have said like they jump on that well it's not about how much dialogue she has okay you're right and that's actually my point it's not it's not just that she doesn't say much it's that she also doesn't do much other than just become a fixture she's an art piece that's that's it and so to me the lack of dialogue is in is a symptom of a bigger issue i have it's mm-hmm. not the actual problem and it's i wish that tarantino would have taken the time to address it but he doesn't have a defense for it because i think a he doesn't he doesn't believe that it's an issue and b he wouldn't know how to explain it in a way that didn't make him look like an asshole if he did I mean, ultimately, it seems like a lot A lot of the time women are treated as symbols and, like you say, as art objects, as images, mm-hmm. as things to be looked at, not things to have a an autonomous presence on the screen. Yeah. And, that's, and that does feed into their lack of dialogue. Right. Um, so, interesting article, worth checking out just as a piece of data. Um, do not take it as the sole criteria by which to measure Tarantino's supposed feminism or lack of feminism. Uh, let's see, moving on. So speaking, speaking of men, um, <laughs> do we that, have to? that, you know, maybe shouldn't, should find a way to defend their own perspectives or maybe just shouldn't speak at all. Uh, Dora the Explorer, <laughs> amazingly enough, became the center of some very creepy conversation and some, some, uh, horror on on social media and elsewhere. So the um, it was the Hollywood Reporter published a a review uh, written by what was the guy's name Tom McCarthy, McCarthy, who has been ar- who's been around for a long time. He's like he's been a, he's done criticism for all sorts of outlets and uh and and has had like he's had a long career as a film critic, but he really began focusing on the fact that, you know, this is a kid's movie and the, the but that Dora's age is made him uncomfortable, sort of, but he began talking about how she is uh, borderline pubescent, but the actress is actually 18 and looks it. And the paragraph that everybody lit, latched onto very rightfully was, um, the director seems to be trying to keep the hormones at bay, but there are th- some things you just can't disguise, perhaps human nature first and foremost. Doris seems committed to projecting a pre-sexualized version of youth, while throbbing unacknowledged beneath the surface is something a bit more real, its presence rigorously ignored. Uh, this provoked... A lot of horror and outrage and confusion and, like, are you saying that you want to fuck Dora the Explorer uh, questions on social media. But it also highlighted one of the problems that we've had with male critics, particularly addressing very young girls or representations of young girls as, you know, on the cusp of womanhood kind of kind of language. And what he's talking about in this paragraph that he's not saying absolutely explicitly, but that is being implied is 
he's talking about sex and he's talking about why, you know, why is Dora, Dora is a sexual being to him. And of course this then opens the question of how did this review even get published? How did no one flag this? How did no one say maybe this is an inappropriate way to approach a kid's film? So uh, I, I want to start with you, Karen, because I am still like shocked that this that this thing was even published. Oh, uh, but what do you think about all of this? So, well, it's really interesting because my award circuit boss, Clayton Davis, he was actually in Washington, D.C., like last week, uh, with a couple of people. He they co they founded the critics group Leha, which is for Latino journalists, and. Um, they were meeting with a senator talking about, you know, why we need more diversity and representation in criticism, in journalism in general, like why we need more voices that are not just white men. And while that meeting is going on, he gets a text message. Holy fuck. Have you seen Todd McCarthy's <laughs> review of Dora the Explorer? And he pulls out his thing and he shows it to the senator, whoever he was talking to. And it's like, this is what I'm talking about. And it's like, yeah. Oh my gosh, dude. Like seriously. One of the things that, that stood out to me besides the three, I think, uses of the word hormones uh, was also why did he feel the need to use the word titular twice, which is a perfectly <laughs> fine word, but when he uses it, it just feels creepy and icky and gross because <laughs> it's like, there's really no reason to do that, especially not twice. Um, yeah, I think that, first of all, I think this is definitely a perfect example of why white men don't need to review everything. I mean, I don't... I don't think we need to get rid of white male voices. I'm not advocating for that, but I'm also saying people like the or outlets like the Hollywood Reporter need to take a good look at who's reviewing stuff for them and really think about who should be reviewing stuff for them. You know, I make the film review assignments at a word circuit and I take the time to think about like who is which of our staff is the right person to do this review and I try to really make sure to to think about that and be very deliberate in those selections. I don't just let people do it because they've been reviewing for the longest or whatever, you know, or they have the easiest access to get to the screening. It's like, who really makes sense to, to cover this? And I wish that more outlets would do that because we need to not have these middle-aged men lusting over girls and trying to trying to explain why they know it's not okay to be lusting after them, but they wish that it had been because the director should have just, you know, gone with it and then it would have been okay for him to have the hots for Dora. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the creepy things about the whole thing is that you are talking about a kid's movie, first of all, mm -hmm. um, that is directed at children. That is for children. It isn't for middle-aged men. Um, and, and you have, you have an actress who is older than the character that she's portraying, but is still young and is still portraying a child. And while I understand that there, you know, there, and there's a conversation that can be had about casting older actresses to play younger characters and, and what that means, because yes, girls do develop, girls do become more, you know, womanly as it were, and then to represent them as being much younger than they actually are does create kind of a weird dynamic sometimes, but his response to that is what's very disturbing. There is this sense that he's almost asking the, the film 
to give him permission to find her sexually attractive. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, the film is not going to because that's not what the film is about. I, the, there was a Daily Dot article that um, reminded us of, uh, you know, some of the things that have been published by New York Magazine's David Edelstein, who um, uh, described Emma Watson in the first Harry Potter movie. So she is a literal child. Yeah, she was 11. Uh, yeah, as absurdly alluring and then refer to a 13-year-old Hermione as delectable. And then later complained that she had uh, grown up to be too pretty when she was actually, you know, an adult woman. So that whole thing is very frightening and very creepy. But Edelstein continues to publish reviews. He continues to do this, even though he gets attacked for this every single goddamn time he writes a review like that. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before, about male critics creating countdowns for when for when female um, when teenage actresses become legal mm -hmm. uh, they had that for Emma Watson they had it for the Olsen twins um, Britney Spears Britney Spears they've had it for uh, 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 Chloe Chloe Moretz like uh, Abigail Breslin I remember seeing a male critic talking about how attractive Abigail Breslin was when she like, before she was uh, of age, then, like, oh, isn't it going to be great when she's actually legal? Again, it's, like, this this constant repetition of these these much older men consuming these girls, like, underage girls, and getting excited when they get old enough that, you know, what, you can date them without being arrested? Is that what you're going for? You know, what exactly is the goal here? Because you're not going to date Emma Watson. Um... 45-year-old David Edelstein, you know, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen, but it's a very creepy dynamic that is happening, and that's what McCarthy is uh, is feeding into. So, and, and it does open the other question, like you're saying, of what what do these outlets, what are these outlets doing? Are they just allowing this in order to get clicks? You know, did this go through an editor? Did no one flag this as being potentially problematic? Yeah. And a couple of people I've talked to about it have said that because of McCarthy's clout at The Hollywood Reporter, probably his reviews and things that he publishes don't get more than a passing glance over there. And I think this proves that that needs to stop. They need to read what they're putting out. If they, Because the thing is, most people aren't going to remember Todd McCarthy wrote this. They're going to remember they saw it in The Hollywood Reporter. Is this really what you want your brand associated with? Yeah, exactly. And I, I am beginning to wonder whether some of these things are being let through for clicks for, mm -hmm. you know, because like, like you say, we're we're sitting here talking about it. You know, we've been it has been discussed online and it, it's been negative, but, but it's, it's still, still attention, yeah. exactly. It's still getting attention. And so and I, I do think that people like Edelstein almost um, do it sometimes in order to get the attention, which doesn't make it any less creepy or less problematic. But then you get into the issue of, okay, we either have to talk about it or we have to not give them the attention. And so that gets into a whole thorny area. But, yeah, I do wish that publications were more responsible, particularly for these critics, and for just saying to them, you know, like, you can't, you know, we, we're going to have to edit this paragraph. You can't publish that paragraph the way that it is written. Yeah, exactly. Um, do not use the word throbbing in reference <laughs> to a prepubescent girl. Like, just don't do it. It's not a good idea. Never, never, ever a good idea. <laughs> and if people are counting how many times you use the word hormones, 
you did it wrong. That's yeah. that's problem. Because I mean, even taking the content out of it, that's bad writing anyway. To use the same verb or noun multiple times in a five hundred word review, that's that's bad writing too. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. I I. I don't. I've read so many female critics and people of color and, like, everything. Like, why are you not getting, like, the big bucks and these these old white dudes are still getting paid so much money? I know. It's sick. Uh, so, I mean, since we're talking about critical reactions to things, uh, I know that I wanted to mention this, and I think you, you have a lot more insight than I do because I haven't seen the movie yet. The sort of mixed critical responses to Jennifer Kent's latest film, The Nightingale. Yes. And I think I'm just going to let you go for it because you have seen the movie and I think you have you have greater insight into what's going on here. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, so first of all, just to kind of sum up for people who may not be aware or don't remember, but The Nightingale is Jennifer Kent's follow-up. She did The Babadook in 2014. And so this is her second feature film that she's directed. And this is way, way, way different from The Babadook, which was a contemporary horror film. Very gritty, very um, very dark, and really um, a really intriguing story uh, that really dealt a lot with grief and stuff. This movie, The Nightingale, also deals with grief, but in a much different way. And it's a historical, you know, it's like a period revenge drama sort of well, not sort of, really it is, kind of a Western set in the 1800s in Australia. And this is during the time when Australia was being colonized. <laughs> and so you've got Ashling Franciosi plays a young woman who's Irish, and she is um, she's in Austra- or she's in Tasmania, actually, is where it takes place. And she's... Um, I'm totally blanking on the word, but she's a convict. She has committed some kind of crime and she's waiting for the local lieutenant to give her permission, like to basically release her and say she's served her time and she's free to go. And she's married. She has a baby. Well, this lieutenant who's played by Sam Claflin, um, he rapes her repeatedly and very violently. And this is like, it's clear when you first meet up with them, it's clear this has been an ongoing thing throughout the time that she has been serving her sentence and um, some terrible, terrible things happen. And she ends up basically on a revenge journey, trying to go after him and his men and take them down and make them pay for the things that they have done to her. And uh, it, she teams up with a local Aborigine tribe, uh, tribe member which his name is Billy and he's there to basically be a guide for her because it's the wilderness it's really scary and dangerous and she she can't go by herself and so the movie uh, it's really brutal it doesn't shy away from the violence at all and I had the opportunity to talk with Jennifer Kent and with Ashling Frank Yossi a couple weeks ago and we talked a lot about the how violent this movie is not just with the rape but just like i mean there's there's killing there's and like wiping out entire aboriginal tribes and things which is the thing that was happening in the 1800s this is very uh this is very serious look at a lot of the issues that were going on in tasmania at the time and so the conversation that we were having was really about the fact that 
most of the questions they've gotten from reporters, Jennifer Kent and Ashling Franciosi, um, most of the questions they've gotten as they've been doing press since this premiered at Venice last year have all fo focused around rape and the fact that she she does not shy away from showing that this happens, of showing the toll that it takes on the women that are raped, because it's not just one, there are two. Um, and, but it's so much more than that. And so I've really seen the discourse on this movie. Oh, that's that rape revenge movie. And it's like, well, yes, but no, it's, there's so much more to it than that. And it's, you know, there's so much, so much surrounding the violence that happens and why it is done and why Jennifer Kent chose to show it as brutally and as viscerally as she does. And it's not unlike with you get what you get with, mostly with male directors. It's not sexualized. It's not fetishized. It's not glorified in any way. And I think that people are having a really hard time handling that because they're not used to seeing rape done in a way that, uh, how do I explain it? Uh, just, they're not, I think that people don't know how to deal with it not looking like you can just clean up and be pretty afterwards is does that mm. make sense yeah it does uh and and i think that that's where people have a hard time they're not used to seeing it just depicted this way and so it's really interesting to see that and then also of course too like i said the conversation just focusing on the sexual violence and not on all the other really terrible genocide level violence that's going on too um it's it's been very interesting to watch that and i think that because i i saw this at sundance and it's really hard to watch it's brutal it's it's painful but it's also really important i think people need to see this movie and really watch the way that she presents the things that she does and the makes the choices that she makes because um yeah, there's this tendency, like one of the things that she and I talked about was how a lot of times, like if there's a scene where there's a rape in a movie, you see uh, someone take their shirt off or you see the guy like, you know, like there's just there's some element to it that kind of makes it seem more normal yeah yeah a lot of times <laughs> yes exactly and in the way that she films these scenes every single time she keeps the the camera focused on the victim's face you don't mm -hmm. see like a man taking off his shirt or the you know the upper thigh of her you know you don't see any of that it's really just 100 percent focused on her and the fact that this is not a sexual act, really, this is an act of dominance and power. And it's mm -hmm. very different than what a lot of people are used to. So, yeah, I, I think I, I think I kind of repeated myself a little bit. I apologize for that, but it's no, no. But yeah, I, I think this is an important, important movie that people need to watch. It sounds, I mean, it's, uh, it, I, I loved the Babadook and, and I, do want to see this at the same time. It's one of those, I think I've said before, uh, it's one of those films that I'm going to have to really, really steal myself uh, going into it. Yeah. Just based upon every, I mean, based upon everything that you just said, everything that I've heard, it is interesting that people are focusing so much on 
the rape, as you say, and not on the genocidal aspects, because even when um, the the film began to be talked about and I read the plot and all that, I was like, oh, so this is at least partially kind of a, a relationship between male violence and power and dominance over women and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And genocide and what that means in, you know, in the context of places like Tasmania and Australia and areas like that where the Aboriginal populations were, sub- were subdued or wiped out completely and violently by, uh, British soldiers. Yeah. And that's, that's an important element, it seems, that, uh, that is being talked about less, as you say, than, than the actual rape scenes and that element of the story. So I, I've seen a couple of people, particularly critics of color, who have begun to talk about it more um, in light of the representation of the, the Aboriginal characters and what that means, and, you know, and, and some of them have had issues with it. So I hope that this is a film that we talk about more and kind of get past some of the brutality into really what the brutality means. Um, yeah, when I when I watched it the first time, well, I've only watched it once. I have not been able to sit down and watch it again. Although after having talked to to Jennifer and Ashling, I want to now watch it, having more of their perspective in mind. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that the the one character, especially Billy, who's played by a newcomer, he's never done a movie before. He's a dancer. Um, but his name is Bakley Ganimbar, and he is an Aborigine from Tasmania, and he's basically, like, I talked with him, too, and he's basically representing generations of his family. This is his family's history, and these are his people that he's talking about and sharing this story about, and really... It's easy, and this is something that we see done so often, you know, when a movie is boiled down to a logline or a quick synopsis, you really ignore what it's truly about. And I I think this movie is, it's easy to talk about the revenge aspect of it and the violence, but really, this is a story of two very lost, very, very damaged people finding each other during incredibly difficult circumstances and forging a, a friendship that is not just unlikely, but um, it's so much deeper because they find ways to heal because of each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's it's really, the relationship that builds between the two of them is really powerful. And I think that not enough attention is given to that side of the story. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's an interesting conversation. I, I am going to see it eventually. I just have to be emotionally prepared for it. Watch it early in the day and then plan <laughs> to go play with puppies or something. <laughs> because you're going to need it. I'll just, like, walk out. I'll walk out of my room and say to my roommates, just like, I hate all men uh-huh. so much. <laughs> yes. I hate you. It's just like, you get out. <laughs> Exactly. It's a lot, you know. Props, props, Nate. You, you. <laughs> I will never. My anger. <laughs> I will never look at Sam Claflin the same way again. That's I just can't. But you know, 
I'm having difficulty even imagining him playing that kind of a role, but I'm certain that it would be. It's actually terrifying how good he is. I bet. Uh huh. <laughs> and it's funny because I was talking to Ashling about it, and she said when she first met him, she was really scared of him. And I was like, how did you guys, how were you able to do this with this guy? You know, like, how did you get, how did you get to that point? And she said that what they had done, because I asked her too, like, how, how did Jennifer work with you guys to make you feel safe doing these scenes? And um, she said that they would rehearse things like the blocking so that you know when someone's getting thrown across a room or something you know where the furniture's at and stuff like that so they would do those kinds of things but they wouldn't ever rehearse the dialogue so she could just keep it on this is Sam he's okay you know so that when they actually were filming then it was like they were in their characters but it didn't it didn't like paper over like how she sees him as a person so yeah. Mm, and yeah, they had, at first had thought about not talking to each other and just keeping that antagonistic feeling and they very quickly realized that's a bad idea. Yeah, I would imagine it. Would yeah. Be. Yeah, and they also had a, a psychologist on set too. So if anybody needed to talk about anything that was happening or just kind of talk through their emotions, they they could right there. They didn't have to wait. I thought it was really, I, I really appreciated hearing how responsible she was and how much care she took with her actors. And just listening to her, you know, talking about as a director, what she feels her responsibility is to her actors to keep them safe and protected. I really appreciated that, cause especially with all the stories you hear about things that male directors have done to just torment people for the sake of getting the right reaction. Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um... It was nice to hear a director that really takes that care and trusts her actors to have the ability to perform the way they need to without having to be shocked or tormented or scared. Uh-huh. See, women should just direct things. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the conclusion of all of this. They should direct all the things. Uh, speaking of women just directing things, moving, let's, let's move on to a, a question that is sort of in relationship to, to some of the stuff that we've been talking about. So this is a question that comes from at Film and Sports 21. Um, were you surprised by the overwhelmingly negative response to The Kitchen? Now, The Kitchen, if, I hope that our listeners have heard of it at least, but a lot of people haven't. I keep on telling people like, oh, this is, this is this movie that's coming out. And they're like, what? I've never even heard of it. But it is a, uh, it's a gangster film starring Tiffany Haddish, Elizabeth Moss, and uh, Melissa McCarthy as a group of women who wind up taking over Hell's Kitchen, the, the, crime, the control of crime in Hell's Kitchen uh, during the 1970s. And a lot of the critical response to it has been very tepid at best. And, and in fact, I think it now has like an 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, something like that. Uh, which is not great. So it's it's been kind of a weird... It's been a weird film to begin with because it wasn't... The studio didn't really heavily promote it. It wasn't um, talked about a great deal. A lot of the critic screenings happened on like Thursday afternoon um, and at very random times, and it, it was moved initially, it had a October release date, and then it was moved to August. And so there's been a lot of speculation about why the studio has been treating this film the way that it has, because it is a, a female-centric film, and is also directed by a woman. Um, and so it's it's an interesting issue. I still have not had a chance to see it, see it although I really want to, <laughs> simply because of the cast, and because of some of the things that 
people that I know and respect have said about it. But it really has received a, a lot of negative response um, from a lot of different quarters. Yeah. Oh, you're going to love it. You're absolutely going to love it. Um, I finally saw it last night. I was one of those Thursday night screening people. It was weird because I first heard that there were screenings in L.A. about a month ago. So I contacted my rep and said, hey, this is one of my most anticipated movies of the year and I'm reviewing this when can I see it? And she was like, oh, well, we don't have anything scheduled yet. And I'm like, that's bullcrap. You have one tomorrow. Um, <laughs> like, I happen to know <laughs> someone that's going to it. But um, I didn't I didn't say anything. I just let it go. But anyway, so I finally ended up seeing it Thursday night because this is the first studio release of the entire year, or at least the summer, but I think the entire year, that did not have Thursday night previews for general audiences. Yeah. So it's like it didn't open until Friday. Everything else has been out Thursday night, like 7 o'clock Thursday night. You could start going to see it, and some even earlier than that. But this one didn't. And uh, I had heard, you know, I know Kristen loved it. She saw it a few weeks ago, and I knew a couple of other people that, with Kristen, I don't always agree with her opinion. In fact, a lot of times we see things, <laughs> I swear we watch <laughs> totally different movies. But um, but when other people were saying very similar things and people that I tend to agree more often with, I was like, okay, good. This is, this is really good. I'm very excited. And I was just getting more and more excited for the movie. And then when they, you know, dropped the Thursday night preview, when they were being super weird about press, um, screenings when they didn't raise the embargo until Wednesday afternoon it for reviews it was just like what why are they burying this movie I don't get it and then when the reviews came out on Wednesday and they were really bad I was like okay this does not this does not correspond to the conversations I've been having with several people I mean five or six different people loved it or at least liked it a lot and so to hear the the level of negativity just completely surprised me. I was not expecting that. I was thinking like maybe high 50s as far as, you know, but by the time yeah. it was getting moved around and they were not having the Thursday movies showings, I figured, okay, the studio doesn't have a lot of faith in this and it's probably not going to, you know, it's not going to be loved universally, but I didn't expect it to be hated so much. And so, yeah, I was shocked. And then when I saw it last night, I was even more surprised and confused because, again, I must have seen a different movie than most people because it's not perfect. There are definitely some issues, and it's very clear this is a first-time director. But it's really interesting. It's a lot of fun. It's very entertaining. And there's a lot more good to it than bad. And so I don't understand and I haven't actually gone and taken the time to read any negative reviews because I know it's mostly just going to be me just going, well, I, I disagree with that, you know. So I just haven't <laughs> bothered. But uh, I will. But, yeah, I just, I, yes, to answer your question, I think, Daniel, uh, yeah, this, <laughs> this did surprise me and I don't really know what to do with it. And it's unfortunate because these three ladies are awesome and Andrea Burloff, she could have a great career as a director, but I'm afraid that now people are going to have a really hard time giving her another chance. Well, it's, it's really, it's a, it was a bizarre situation. It reminded me, um, and actually we talked about this on this podcast, uh, I think over a year ago, um, it, it reminded me of 
the um, Proud Mary film and the release of Proud Mary and how it was like advertised and then we sort of knew about it, but it, it, it got shuffled around so much, it didn't get many critical screenings and the reaction then was very, very mixed. And there were some people that were like, oh, I actually really enjoyed this and this was great. I don't know why they buried it. Um, and then others were like, no, there's a reason why they buried this. And so I do always wonder when the studio begins to lose faith in a film or exhibits their lack of faith, when critics then begin approaching this like, I don't have faith in it anymore. Yeah. So you go in expecting the film to not be as good. And so maybe the flaws are heightened the um this you know it's just like okay let me I'm now I'm going to try to figure out why the studio decided to just essentially try to bury this film uh and so I I don't want to say that people are biased or anything like that but I'm that that kind of um understanding does creep in because everybody begins talking about it's like why why isn't this being screened um why why aren't they trying you know sh- why aren't they releasing it on Thursday night for audiences you know all of that stuff uh, it's disappointing. I really want, I mean, I want to see the film. I might go see it this weekend. Do it. Uh, just for fun, because like looking at it, I'm like, this looks like the kind of thing I would enjoy. I mean, I'm not expecting a masterpiece, but it looks like fun. And I, I'm willing, you know, with those three actresses and with a female director, I'm definitely willing to give it a chance. Yeah. Like, and her, I think the fact that you brought up Proud Mary is so apt here because that is an example of a movie where there were a lot of problems. And, that basically got buried in what February I think it ended up coming yeah. out, and so it's like that made sense. And if and one of the things that I don't understand is if the studio thought this movie was completely not worth their time, but they didn't want to lose to all of their investment, why didn't they move it to January or February? Why did they move it to the summer, and yeah. and then not market it? That doesn't make any sort of sense whatsoever to me. And then, but. But yeah, like just looking at the types of movies they are, Proud Mary <laughs> was a mess. Nothing made sense. The story didn't flow. The character development was completely lacking. This, the issues are more of just like some of the things move too quickly, you know, and some of the character development just could have been fleshed out better. I understood everybody's motivations. I just would have liked to have understood a little bit more of their backstory to to see why they would have made certain decisions that they made, even though it was pretty easy to follow and understandable. So, yeah, it's it's it doesn't make sense. I don't I don't get it. And anybody who tries to tell me this has nothing to do with the fact that Andrew Burloff is a woman, I'm going <laughs> to vehemently disagree with you because I think that's exactly what the problem is here. Well, that's that's one of the fears I think that uh, we've expressed and that some people have also expressed on, online is that female that studios have been hiring more female directors, they have been hiring more people of color, but you have to look at the way that they are supporting or not supporting their films and whether or not that they're essentially going to use this as an excuse to be like, well, these films didn't do very well, so we're just going to, you know, we just assume that, oh, well, these aren't the kind of movies that audiences want. And so it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where you don't market female-directed films, you don't market... Uh, films that are directed by people of color and then you're like oh well, obviously the audiences don't want them no the audiences don't know about them like i'm saying i you know i was telling some of my friends upstate about this film and they were like i've never even heard of it but that's a great cast mm-hmm. and it was like yeah of course you haven't heard of it because it's been advertised like once 
Yeah, exactly. And and the other thing that I see here too is like it's this. I think I was saying on the Slack, it's kind of this double-edged sword of like Warner Brothers hasn't marketed it, so I want to tell people go see this movie, go give it your money, show them we want more of these movies. But at the same time, if it does manage to make money, then that sends the message to Warner Brothers of like, oh, we can just count on these movies to have word of mouth. We don't need to spend money on marketing. Uh-huh. And then they're putting the marketing onus on us. And that's not fair. It's not. I'm not your marketer. It's not my responsibility to convince people to go see your movie. It's my responsibility to watch your movie and say, hey, this is interesting. This is good. And this is worth your time. But people have to know about it. And, they, and that is not where my responsibility falls completely, you know? Yeah, especially not when you're talking about big studio films with big names and big budgets behind them. You know, if you're talking about small films, then yeah, small films need all the help that they can get. But, you know, when you're when you're dealing with people like Warner Brothers, it's like, no, you, you should be selling your movies. That's your job. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's see. I'm trying to figure out a good transition for this. Speaking of selling movies. <laughs> um, so Vanity Fair. Let's talk about Vanity Fair. Let's talk briefly about streaming, because that is something we love discussing, and we seem to discuss the same damn topic because no one gets the message. So Vanity Fair recently published, uh, I guess they would call it an op-ed, an article on um, called The Film Snob's Dilemma, which dealt with uh, the issues of streaming services and uh, the way that films are marketed on streaming services and, and what people know about and what people don't know about. And basically, the, the article is more involved than this, but basically one of the conclusions that the article came to is exactly the opposite conclusion than a number of people had come to like six months ago. Uh, the conclusion the article came to was that there are too many options for film snobs, that it's actually difficult and by film snobs, we're talking about people that are interested in art house and classic films. That's really what what the moniker is depicting. Although I'm, I greatly question how that sort of uh, label. But the argument of the article is essentially that there is so much content out there on services like Hulu, on services like Netflix and Amazon, and then also services like the Criterion Channel. Um that there's so much content that's available that it's difficult to know where to start and that it's actually working against the um, the kind of fostering of, of cinephiles and fostering of smaller art house films or getting to being able to see classic films and stuff like that. It's a very odd article because it seems to be bemoaning, it seems to be on the one side bemoaning the accessibility of content and then also the inaccessibility of content that somehow we're both not watching enough of these films but we have too many of them to watch and it, it was a it's a very odd one it, it, it she also brings in the, the writer also brings in um the issues of the video stores and apparently believes that we all had indie curated video stores when we were teenagers which i definitely did not uh, my local video stores were Blockbuster and for a while Hollywood Video and I, I shit you not, I watched the same 10 classic films that that Blockbuster had because that's all they had. 
and I watched them from the age of about seven to the age of about 15. So that's what I got to see. I got to see the same as Aaron Rodgers films 50 times. <laughs> Did it foster my love of Hollywood cinema and my love of classic cinema? Absolutely it did. But there was not a great deal of availability in terms of different kinds of films at art house and classics and everything. No, I watched the Aaron Rodgers and the Marx Brothers <laughs> ad infinitum because that's what I got. Um, so it's a very odd article. Yeah. It is a very weird bemoaning of the excess of content. And it does indicate to me that what she's essentially saying is I have not tried to Google anything um, to find out where things are, are showing on things like the Criterion Channel or Netflix, et cetera, because there are so many websites, our own included, Karen, mm -hmm. that talk about films that are available on the different streaming services that maybe get a little bit buried or that people don't know about because of just the, the sheer numbers of movies. So my reaction to this was very like, well, this is really privileged bullshit. And are you actually complaining about the fact that we have too many movies to watch? Seriously. Yes. Yes, she is. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I grew up in a town where we did have Video City and it was, you know, the guys that worked there were total movie snobs that made great recommendations based on what, I mean, it's like, it was seriously the video store that you see in movies about the 80s where you've got the guy who's like, oh, well, do you like this or that, you know? The kid that ran it was Randy from Scream, basically. And, um... But it's still, it was limited. It was this small store. They had, what, like 10,000 movies, maybe? That seems like a high estimate. And um, they probably had more like 5,000 movies. I know they're, they're, the shelves were full, but it was like their their availability was, like if something was checked out, they only had one copy of it. So you had to wait until someone t returned it. Sometimes there was yeah. a waiting list, you know? So you couldn't just watch things whenever you felt like it. And it was based on what they actually owned. And when a tape would wear out, it wasn't always feasible for them to replace it. So sometimes they just didn't have that movie anymore and there was nothing you could do about it. And that's, that's the kind of thing that you deal with with physical media. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with physical media. I love my collection. I, it's not very big, uh, especially compared to some people. But I love my DVDs and my Blu-rays. And they're great. And that's fine. But I also... I'm not good. I don't have the money to shell out to go buy every movie I'm vaguely interested in seeing either. And so having yeah. streaming available to check stuff out that I might normally never have had the opportunity to because there's no longer a blockbuster or a Hollywood video or a video city anywhere near me. They don't exist anymore. And luckily there's apps there just watch is one of my favorite apps i've got it on my phone i pull it up all the time like oh is this movie streaming anywhere and it'll tell you everywhere that it's streaming and you can even narrow it down by what actual services you have access to so it doesn't just say oh well yeah it's cool that you could get it on showtime but you don't have showtime you know like i can find yeah oh great this is on hulu or whatever so it's yeah, she's complaining about two separate things that are contradictory. There's too much, and but it's it almost sounds like there's too much stuff, and none of it's the exact movie that I'm looking for right now. It's like she went out of her way to find movies that were specifically unavailable, just to make her point, 
And it's like, okay, yeah, not every single movie ever made is available for streaming somewhere. But guess what? Not every movie ever made was available to rent at Blockbuster either. So what's the point? Why is yeah, this it, a bad thing? Exactly, exactly. And I, I did dislike, and I, I feel like the Criterion channels keeps on getting shoved off to the side. We were all very sad when Filmstruck shuttered. But the Criterion Channel, while it does not have the same things that Filmstruck did, it does have some of the same things, and it is very well curated, yeah. and, and they're actually getting better about curating them. So they have, like, you know, oh, you like, uh, you know, Werner Herzog? Well, here's 15 of his films. So you've got the bi- some of the bigger films, the films that everybody knows, like Nosferatu the Vampire and Fitzcarraldo, but you've also got some of his smaller films, and films that may, you know, some of his student films, films that maybe you haven't heard of or you haven't seen. And, you know, I I said the other day that I really wanted to watch a very particular film called um, Panic by uh, Julien de Vivier. And they didn't have that on the Criterion channel, but what they did have was a different film by Julien de Vivier that was a, um, basically a small film noir. And I watched that, and I loved it. So it does feel like it basically streaming is a video store. Like you're saying, streaming is this massive video store that you get access to certain things. You don't get access to other things, but it is way better than the video store of my childhood. There's so much more and, and so many different directors that I can watch. Right now, the Criterion channel has a, a channel that is dedicated to Ida Lupino's films you know, do you think that Ida Lupino's films were available in my childhood video store? No, I did not know that Ida Lupino was a director. Exactly. You know, the most I knew about her was that she was in a movie with Humphrey Bogart. Like, that was it, because it just wasn't present. Um, so to sit around and complain that, like, you know, I think that there are lots of problems with streaming, and there is there is a lot of, of issues with services like Net- like Netflix and, like, Amazon that bury some of their art house films, that bury some of their classics, um, and then even bury some of the films that they produce themselves. But that shouldn't, therefore, make you say, like, oh, we just can't watch these movies. No, this is a great time to be a cinephile. Like, there is so much available that I've never even heard of and that I want to hear of. So everybody stop complaining. Google the movies. Google lists. Yeah. Search the channels. You'll find something. It might not be the specific film that you want, but you will find something. That's the thing. And to act like, I mean, I do wish that Netflix, for example, would do a better job of of putting out some of their original content and making it easy to find. Like it's, yeah. you know, I knew a lot of people that um, Roma, they had to actually search for it when it was available. And it's like, why isn't that front and center on everybody's homepage? You know, that should be everywhere. You should be blasting that shit to everybody. It's not shit. It's wonderful. But, um, but that's the thing. So I, I do wish that they would do better of marketing some of those things. And also maybe, you know, some, well, I don't even like the personalized recommendations because I think those are just so algorithmically based that, yeah, okay, because I liked other stuff, I might like this. Sure, that's true, but what about other stuff that I've never given a try to that, yeah. you know, let help me help me discover things that are not what I normally watch. That's what I would also like. And um so I do wish that Netflix and Hulu and and, you know, Prime would figure out some other ways to to do kind of what Criterion does where they have these sort of packages and and make it easy to find 
lots of different types of things from different filmmakers, from different actors, or however they want to do it. But, um, but yeah, there's so many ways to find, like, I mean, every everybody who writes about film has their top 50 films ever and, you know, hidden <laughs> gems. And, I mean, look at, you know, Roger Ebert, Leonard Malton, all these guys have been writing for decades about all these underseen films that, you know, that you could go check out. And a lot of those films are available now because of streaming services. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, as a... If, if I was just starting out, if I was just really interested in film right now, I was like, okay, what do I want to see? I would, I would seriously Google it. Like, find the AFI lists, find the BFI lists, find, you know, like, what's available on Netflix this month? There's so many lists that are like that. And you don't have to take everything as gospel, but you will find things to start with. Yeah. And things that you find interesting and places that you can go. So, like, what is the, you know... What Godard film should I see if I've never seen Godard? What Truffaut film? What Herzog? What, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Famous female directors, all of that sort of thing. They're, they're, we do have access to a lot of that. And, and that's a good thing. And that also means that you're supporting those services and you're saying, like, this is something I care about. This is something I'm interested in. Yeah. So, dear God, use Google, people. Exactly. Oh, my God. And just because the entire <laughs> Criterion library is not available for streaming on the Criterion channel right now, don't don't make that your excuse not to subscribe. <laughs> they have a lot of really good stuff there. They have a lot of stuff that isn't on the Criterion collection at all. That's true, too. And really fun and conversations. And, yeah, there's all kinds of good stuff on there. Yes. So, check it. Do it. Do it. Go go to I write Damestruck on a semi-regular basis. Like, come on, go and read those articles. Most of those films are still available. Exactly. Anyways, alright. Uh, alright, well, I want to jump to a film that I want to pimp for that is actually going to be available on a streaming service very, very shortly. A, in fact, a curated streaming service called Shudder that most horror fans know about and love and adore. Um, Issa Lopez's uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid is going to be coming out, I believe, this week uh, in a limited release. I know that it's getting releases in New York and L.A. and a couple of other major cities. So if you are in those cities, um, please, please go and see this film. This is a film that is about a group of children. It's a magical realist film about a group of children in Mexico who have essentially lost their parents to drug cartels, to kidnapping, um to simply being abandoned. Uh, and it is about them kind of eking out their existence and living their lives on the streets of their hometown that is basically being ruled over by these very violent cartels. But it's told entirely from the children's perspective and has some wonderful elements of horror, of Fantasia, of Fantastica. It is a beautiful film. The kids are brilliant. And it is also a very, very important film to see right now. It was important when it came out in 2018, um, and I, I saw it initially at Fantasia. It is even more important right now. There are some scenes that are going to be diffi- more difficult to watch now than they even were last year because of some of the things that have been going on uh, at the border. And so please, if, if you see it in limited release, go see it. It is absolutely worth it. It is worth your time and money. And it will also be coming out on Shutter, I think, later on this month. So it's getting kind of a staggered release date as a result of that. It's a fantastic film. This is something Guillermo del Toro even talked about um, during his acceptance of the Hollywood Walk of 
thing. Like this, this is very important to him. Um, Isa Lopez is a, a fantastic female Mexican director, and she's going to do some really great things uh, if this film is any indication. <laughs> so please go see it. Everyone go see it. You know what? I will. I am excited. That sounds great. Yes, it is. It is great. And I also still, my review is still up on the Citizen Dame website. So read that also. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about reviews now? Um, yeah, let's do a couple quickly. Let's do some quick reviews. Yeah, we're, we're running over time a little bit. Um, so how about, you've seen Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I did, speaking of movies. Do you have week. a... Mm-hmm. Do you have a reaction to that movie? I do have a reaction to scary stories I tell <laughs> in the dark. So, I mean, I love, I remember buying the book in sixth uh-huh. grade from my scholastic book order. You remember those when they would send them home? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I got it. It was like $2 or something, you know. And it, there were certain stories in there that scared the living hell out of me when I was a kid. And I still have my copy somewhere. And I loved that book. And so when I heard that Guillermo del Toro, speaking of, was um, was producing, he doesn't direct it, it's on, uh, Andre Olverson, I think, a Norwegian director. Um, but del Toro was, was producing it. And I was immediately like, ooh, okay, I can't wait. And then I saw the first trailer and I was like, oh, okay, my expectations are a little bit more muted now. I'm not sure how I'm feeling about the direction of this, but I saw it this week and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I felt like it really captured the the creepiness of watching and, and reading these old stories when you're a kid. And this isn't you know, I'm not going to say, oh, well, adults can't appreciate and understand this movie because I think that argument's kind of bullshit in most cases, unless it's Todd McCarthy talking about Dora the Explorer. But um, I I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was so much fun. I thought that the way that they brought some of these stories to life and wove them together into one, one uh, plot really worked, uh, really worked well. I thought it was... It was interesting. The kids are cute. Um, the the main girl, I uh, I should have looked up her name, but she reminds me so much of my friend's daughter. Like the way she looks, I just kept thinking like, oh, that's Allison. You know, the whole time it was a little distracting, and I could totally see her being just like this girl in this movie too. That was it was so funny. But um, but yeah, like the effects are really cool when they do the Me Tai Do Walker, and um, there's another one like. I mean, the worms, the hearse song, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, like that gets mm-hmm. stuck in your head. And just the way that they put all that together was just, it was, it was great. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. And it was weird because that was another movie where I saw really mixed reactions and a few people were like, yeah. this isn't scary at all. And I'm like, well, no, I would have been scared when I was 13. I'm not scared as an adult. They're not adult level scares, but I also felt like it was creepy. So I don't know. It worked for me. I, I very much want to see it. I'm like you. I read the book when I was a kid, and the, the drawings still stay with me. Like that, there's some drawings that I'm like, oh my god, I can still remember that. I can still remember. The, there, there's like a visceral feeling about those and things. Yeah, and it's so cool the way that they have managed to take those, the look, those aesthetics from those drawings, and translate them into something that can feel like something that could exist in our world. 
So, mm. so they don't, it's not like, oh, that looks completely different. That doesn't look great. No, it, it looks like, oh, yeah, if that existed, if they were drawing something that was real, this is what it would actually look like. So it was cool. <laughs> and also made it a little creepy. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I want to see that, too. There's so many movies I want to see right now. Yeah. All right. And, this, and then the other film is uh, The Peanut Butter Falcon, which has been getting a little bit of play and people have been talking about it a little bit. Again, it's, I haven't been paying a great deal of attention to it, but it sounds like an interesting movie. So did you get a chance to actually see it? I did, and I loved it. I really liked this. I first heard about it a couple years ago at an event for Mudbound, actually. I was talking to one of the Mudbound producers and asking him, so what do you have coming up next? And he told me, he's like, yeah, I just got involved with this film. It's about this this kid who has Down syndrome and he really wants to be a wrestler. He's super obsessed with wrestling. And so he's telling me all about this movie and I'm like, Oh, that sounds, that sounds intriguing. Actually the girl I was just referencing my, my friend's daughter who looks like the girl from scary stories. She has a sister who has Down syndrome. And um, so when we were talking about some of the aspects of, of this story and this kid Zach, it just was making me think like, wow, this is cool. We need more representation of of people with different abilities in film. And it just sounded like a really intriguing story. So when I finally got to watch it last week, because um, I missed it at South by, it did screen there. Um, I was so, I just loved it. I thought it was really sweet. Shia LaBeouf plays this guy that, uh, it sort of has a bit of a Huck Finn feel to it as far as like you know these two people who have nothing really in common at all they just kind of find each other and start traveling together and they forge this bond and um so basically zach got sagan is the main kid and he has this dream of being a wrestler and he wants to go meet his hero and so he breaks out of this nursing home where they've put him because there's no one else to take care of him and because his whole family is gone or dead. And so he's been in this nursing home, even though he doesn't really need to be there. He breaks out and runs away and ends up meeting up with Shia LaBeouf, who is kind of on the run from some guys that he has uh, screwed over a little bit. And uh, so then he decides, hey, I'm going to help this kid. Why not? And just the friendship that grows between the two of them is just really, it's sweet, but it's not overly saccharine sweet you know and um one of the things i really appreciated is the fact that like shia's character he never treats zach like he's like he's less he never treats him like he doesn't understand anything he he treats him like he's like i expect you to understand what i'm talking about and how do you not know this and stuff like that and just treating him like he's like he's an equal and it was just so well done it's funny it's it's just it's cute. Dakota Johnson is in it, and she's really sweet, too. And, yeah, it's a good movie that'll just make you feel happy. That sounds lovely. Like, the, I, the, God, there are so many movies now that I want to see know. that seem to be <laughs> flying a little bit under the radar or that people are not talking about a great deal. But it's it's good to see that those kinds of films are coming out and are getting some play. Something that's really interesting here is... Uh, I've mentioned before, in my day job, I work at a college. And so I'm around, you know, older teenagers and young 20-somethings most of the day. And uh, earlier in the week, I was talking to a couple of my students, and 
um, you know, they they like to ask me, oh, what movies are coming out? What should I go see? And so I told them, oh, this weekend the kitchen's coming out. I'm really excited for that. And they're like, what is that? They had never heard of it. So I kind of summed it up and explained it to them. And then I said, oh, and the Peanut Butter Falcon's coming out. There's, oh, and I said, there's another movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon. I was expecting them to be like, what the hell is that, you know? And they all were like, oh, is that this week? That looks so good. And I was just like, wait a second, what? You've heard of the Roadside movie, but not the Warner Brothers movie. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, that's, that's an interesting, like, dichotomy going on right Yeah, there. so Roadside Attractions, they marketed this right because, and it's like, ever since then I started noticing, all week I've seen, I've seen ads on TV, I've seen, I've heard ads on the radio, so it's like they really are trying to get the word out about this movie. And it's still going to be a small, it's an independent film, but I think that this is, you know, I think this is going to do all right. And it should because it's a really, it's a really well-made film. Good. Yeah. Well, I, I'm looking forward to that, too. I probably won't get a chance to see that until I'm back in the city, but. Yeah, probably hard to find in upstate New York. <laughs> there's no way it is coming to upstate New York, you know, that's. That's the other thing about streaming services, guys, you do not want to see what is at the cinema in my hometown. <laughs> like, I mean, it's all the same stuff, but they're, sh- they're still showing Annabelle Comes Home up here. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> Which was good, and I liked it, but come on, guys. Come on. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> they're not showing anything that is, like, even remotely a small film at all. Like, we just don't get that. Um, so I think that that is probably going to wrap us up. Uh, so lots of fun things to see this week. As always, we are, you can find us on all sorts of places uh, to download the podcast. You can find us on Podbean and Spotify and iTunes. And we have a YouTube channel now, I think. Yeah, I heard that rumor. I don't pay attention to these things sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, YouTube? Okay, sure, whatever. Uh, and of course we are also on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. We are on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We are still on Facebook, even though I have been informed that Facebook is Satan. Yes. Um, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, we are at Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. You can email us if you have questions, concerns, comments. Uh, if you say anything nasty, we will delete you. Uh, Not your comment, we will delete you. Yeah, you personally. Uh, we are at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Uh, our website is, of course, citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews. Kristen's review of The Kitchen is up. Uh, she also has a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've got some Fantasia reviews that are up, and I will be going back to my Damestruck column within the week, probably, once I actually get back to New York City and become a functioning member of society again. Uh, we are also on, as we've said, Patreon. That's patreon.com slash citizendame. If you want to buy some of our merchandise, we do have a few things on zazzle.com slash citizendame. And if you want to give us some of your money, but you don't want to dedicate yourself to the Patreon quite yet, you can uh, send us some cash at ko-fi.com uh, slash citizendame. So what do you have this week, Karen? Anything exciting? Well, tomorrow, the reason we recorded this on Friday is because Saturday morning, I am having breakfast with the Pearson family. This is us. It's an Emmy event. I'm super excited. And, uh, yeah. It's, like I said, it's Emmy time. I mean, voting opens on Thursday, so they're doing kind of their last push of trying to 
get stuff out there to the masses. So I'm also going to an event on Sunday for when they see us. So that'll be that'll be Ooh. good. But I don't know if I have any screenings this week. Not yet. I'm sure something will pop up. Um, and and I am still uh, in upstate New York, so I probably go to see The Kitchen or maybe Scary Stories, depending upon what I can convince my parents to do. <laughs> nice. And, of course, you can follow us all on Twitter at our individual Twitters. I am at LH Business. Kristen is at Journeys underscore Film. Karen, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. So I think that will wrap us up. Thank you all for listening. Bye. I thought you ladies should know that there's a contract out on each of you. Who put the hit out on us? Uh, me and my boys was in a bar. And this guy we done some business with, he asked me. Yeah, asked asked you what? Well, to kill you. What's his name? Something Irish. Ah, they they all sound the same. A dodo or Duffy. No, no, he's he's my cousin. He knows that we are in business with you. How much they offer to pay? Twenty-five grand for each of you. That's seventy-five. We'll give you a hundred. You go to war. There's no coming back.